Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Jay Shapiro again. September 5th was the anniversary of one of the most horrendous things in modern Israeli history. Fifty years ago, on September 5th, 1972, eight terrorists from the PLO's Black September group infiltrated the poorly guarded Olympic Village in Munich, Germany, broke into an apartment housing Israeli athletes, and took 11 of them hostage. While the games were suspended for just a day, the hostages were tortured and abused by her Palestinian captors. Two Israelis were murdered at the village. Nine more were murdered during the bungled German rescue attempt the following day. Five of the eight terrorists were also killed. Compounding the atrocity, the surviving three terrorists were released shortly afterward in an exchange for hostages on a hijacked Lufthansa plane. There was an editorial in the Jerusalem Post this week which really sums up the occasion, the tragedy, and the memories. I want to quote from it. The attack is now known as the Munich Massacre was a travesty. West Germany hosting the Olympics, and they were doing so since uh, the first time since the Berlin Games of 1936, when Germany was under the rule of Hitler and the Nazis. At that time, they wanted to make a good impression on the world. So all eyes were on the Munich for the 1972 Olympics, and for, because essentially it was a special occasion, the first time the Germans hosted the Olympics since the days of Hitler. And this is exactly what the Palestinian terrorists exploited. The picture of the mass terrorists stepping out onto the balcony of the apartment where the Israelis were being held has become iconic. The world watched the hostage crisis as if it were a reality show. Shockingly, despite the carnage, the games went on that year, 1972. Only at the Tokyo Olympics last year did the International Olympic Committee at last agree to hold a minute's silence at the opening ceremony for the Israelis killed back in 1972. The Munich Massacre was a reminder of the worst side of combining or mixing sports and politics. The attack was the antithesis of the famed supposed Olympic spirit. The Black September movement, a terrorist movement, hijacked the games to put the Palestinian cause on the world map. And for practical purposes, it changed the world forever. The need for the security that is now required at every high-profile sporting or entertainment event 
can be traced back to Munich in 1972. You can say that a dotted line connects the Munich massacre to the more recent attacks by Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. The world thought that terrorism against Israelis and Jews would remain just that, just against Jews. But that's not the way terrorism works. Germany, of all places, knows that what starts with attacks on the Jews doesn't end there. Last Sunday, our president, Isaac Herzog, began a state visit to the Federal Republic of Germany at the invitation of West Germany's, Germany's uh, president, Steinmeier. They're scheduled to, to participate in the 50th anniversary memorial for the murdered athletes together with the victims' families. Also, that it will be attended by Germany's top leadership and officials from the Olympic Committee of Israel. Now, what's interesting is relatives of the murdered victims had threatened to stay away from the memorial as part of a campaign for an official German apology and additional compensation to the families. Back in 2002, Germany agreed to $4.5 million in compensation. Last week, embarrassed by the possible boycott of the memorial by the families, the German government agreed to pay $28 million. The families have long sought the compensation as part of an acknowledgement that German authorities were at fault for failing to protect the Israeli team despite warnings at that time and for the botched rescue attempt. Now, over the years, there have been different ongoing signs of Israel's enemies using sports to attack or delegitimize the Jewish state. For example, last month, Palestinian Authority head Mahmoud Abbas, when asked by a reporter at the German Chancellery in Berlin whether he would apologize for the Munich massacre, by the way, he had ties to the, uh, the financial ties. He was the money man for the terrorist organization. So when he asked whether he would apologize, he instead launched that tirade against Israel, accusing Israel of committing what he called 50 holocausts. Shamefully, from time to time, Competitors from Iran and other Muslim countries have refused to face Israeli opponents in sports. This is not only bad sportsmanship, it's bad news for the world as a whole. During his visit, Herzog will address the German Bundestag and promise to speak about major issues on the agenda, including the Iranian nuclear program. Now, nothing will bring back the 11 murdered members of the Israeli Olympic team. Nothing can ever truly compensate the families for their loss. 
But we should welcome the fact that the German authorities and Olympic officials finally, after all these years, acknowledge the tragedy. Fifty years on, it's important not only to acknowledge the Munich massacre, but hopefully to learn from it. It's interesting, back in the 90s and 60s and 70s, the the Olympics was part of uh, what was thought would be a post-war international hope. Uh, because there had been a World War One, a World War Two, the UN was founded after the League of Nations failed, and the the modern Olympics, which are actually relaunched back in Athens in 1896, the 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 idea was. Even in those days, the Olympics in ancient Greece, even nations or groups that were at war would stop fighting long enough to entertain themselves with sports. So sports is seen as a forum for excellence that is not politicals. The, uh, so it was hoped that after the Second World War, that somehow the idea of the Olympics would get back the idea of peace. Then came the 1972 Munich Munich Olympics, in which the uh, West Germany, hoping to repent for its Nazi crimes, essentially became the base for the Olympics, and the... uh, it was essentially, it's interesting, back in 1972, there were two Germanies. There was East Germany, which was communist, and there was West Germany. So they thought that the uh, the celebrating the Olympics in West Germany would celebrate the world's progress since the 1936 Hitler Games, when the Nazis hijacked the Berlin Olympics to champion Aryan supremacy and foment Jew hatred. So uh, it's interesting. People follow the Olympics. People prepare to partake in the Olympics for years. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, Of course, every country roots for its own uh, people, despite or whatever the sport is. By the way, as an aside, one of the uh, American um, Olympic uh, players, Mark Spitz, who was Jewish, uh, he uh, he was a pre-dental student at the time, as a swimmer, and he won an unprecedented seven gold medals. Interestingly enough, because of what happened, that the terrorists took over the um, place where the Israelis were staying, they were frightened. What would the Germans were frightened um, that there'd be more anti-Jewish violence, and they actually smuggled Spitz out of Munich. He and his coach were whisked to the airport, lying in the back of a car covered by a blanket.
And even back home in California, the Secret Service protected Spitz for the next three months. So it's interesting that the tragedy offered the International Olympic Committee an opportunity to do penance for green lighting the infamous 1936 Hitler Games. The very fact that the International Olympic Committee uh, permitted the Games to be held in Nazi Germany, knowing the nature of the regime there, was really a black mark on the Olympic Committee. So what happened was the, uh, the president of the International Olympic uh, Committee, a man named a- Avery Bundich, he uh, apparently a semi anti semite uh, who is the one who approved his hitler of uh, hosting the game in 1936 and when the the athletes from israel were killed years later he insisted that the games must go go on the day, the games did continue and many people's faith in the international order, the thought that the the Olympics would somehow symbolize a new world order, peaceful one, it turned out that everyone was wrong. And interestingly enough, the more Palestinian terrorists terrorized innocents, the more international recognition they achieved. Two years later, the United Nations welcomed the head of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, who's really one of the fathers of modern terrorism. He became the first representative of a non-member organization to address the General Assembly, and he wore a holster with a gun in it when he addressed the UN. The uh, interesting, uh, in describing what they called this dramatic day, the New York Times reported, and I quote, cameramen and other people who were near Mr. Arafat noticed that he was wearing a holster under his bulging windbreaker. Characteristically, a PLO spokesman asserted that the holster, if there had been one, had been empty. Who knows? So, it's interesting. The UN has often functioned as the third world dictator's debating society, while sports have become increasingly politicized. In 1953, 55% of Americans told Gallup pollsters the UN was doing a good job. That was in 1953, 55%. By 1975, only 32% said that the UN was doing a good job. And a slogan began to spread in the United States where get the U.S. out of the U.N. and the U.N. out of the U.S. The U.N. turned out to be a tremendous failure. 
So, 50 years after the Munich massacre, we have to mourn not only the murdered Israeli athletes, we mourn thousands murdered by terrorism globally as the organizations like the PLO just are terrorist organizations and they inspire others to, to be terrorists. So, in a sense, when you really think about it, there's been a tremendous loss of faith since the end of the Second War. It was right after the war in the post-war, post-war world thought that they could build something that would bring peace. There were high hopes at that time. It turns out they were a delusion. They, uh, what happens at the, uh, at the Olympics, what happens almost daily in the UN, simply shows that the faith that we had at the end of the Second War was a very, very innocent faith, and simply what we believed would happen didn't. The world today is not only better off than it was then, but we are facing the possibility, and in particular, we in Israel are facing the possibility of a nuclear-armed Iran, which is promising to as a weapon that will use it against Israel, and even our democratic friends like the United States, it looks like they're going to go along with this. And uh, the uh, I don't have to repeat the history to the listeners, but the uh, the uh, President Trump pulled out of the nuclear agreement with Iran. And this present administration looks like it's going back into the agreement, which will essentially Iran to be, allow Iran to become a nuclear power, which is just a horrible, a horrific thought. At the time of my program now, on this, on this date, in early September, supposedly goodwill negotiations are going along, between some of the Western powers and Iran, but apparently, uh, even if Iran were to agree to some kind of uh, agreement that would limit their uh, nuclear capability, they're going to cheat anyhow and get the capability that would become dangerous, not only for Israel, and of course that's the thing that worries us most, but it'll be dangerous for the entire Middle East. The fact that Iran can become a nuclear power, interestingly enough, is bringing Israel together with other Muslim nations who fear Iran. And interestingly enough, I'm sure that the listeners know, the most of the, uh, the Muslim nations are uh, Shiite, and uh, the... Um, but the Muslim, the nature of Iran, I'm sorry, the Muslim are Sunni. There's two types of uh, Islam. Most of the uh, Muslim nations are Sunni, and Iran is Shiite, and the Sunnis and the Shiites don't get along with each other to begin with. So we are facing 
a very dangerous time in the world, and we have to remember Munich when we the West and the so-called democratic countries allowed terrorism to take over that was supposed to be a unifying contest, the United the uh, Olympics. So it's a time to remember and learn from the memory. I'll be back after the break. Hi, you're back with Jay Shapiro. In this uh, segment of the program, I want to touch upon a number of uh, topics, not related, but I think uh, some of it is really uh, under the radar, but I think they should be of interest to the listeners. I want to talk about the uh, weapon of choice, if you will, that Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, uses against Israel. Now, there is, vi- there is Palestinian violent rejectionism uh, of the state of Israel, and it's not been built in. It's been 100 years in the making. It's been long and strategic, and it's trying less to build a case for a Palestinian national homeland, but rather using most of its time and its resources to try and demolish the case, legitimacy, and existence of the Jewish national homeland. In other words, they're not so much trying to build a national homeland, which they have had a number of opportunities but their main goal is to destroy the Jewish homeland. Now, historically, from the beginning, the Palestinian leaders were people like Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, who were inherently anti-Semitic. And I know the old argument that, that the Arabs here are also Semites, But the word anti-Semitic has come to mean only hatred of Jews, doesn't it? And you can't be an an anti-Semite against Arabs. They didn't hate the Jewish people because of their nationalist aspirations. They hated Jewish national aspirations because the Jews were not to be deemed an equal people deserving of existence, let alone sovereignty. In other words, the Muslim leadership looked upon the Jews as not equal to them. They were to be subjected to Muslim rule. That's why Hajimin al-Husseini, who was the leader of the Palestinian Arabs for many years, that is why he could so seamlessly ally himself with Adolf Hitler and proudly state at the time to Hitler that the Jews were their shared enemy. However, it wasn't until Israel's stunning victory in the Six-Day War in 1967, a time when Israel liberated Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and other territories up to the Jordan River, that at that time, Palestinian propaganda received its greatest boost. Now, some internal and external critics like to claim that the change in Israel's international image was because it now occupied territory 
did not it did not previously hold. A more accurate understanding shows that this was when the Soviet Union assisted the Palestinian Arabs to build a sophisticated international machinery to reject Israel and to reject the Jewish people. It's interesting. We now know that several of the major diatribes against the Jewish state were created at that time by the Department of Propaganda of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the KGB. They even tried to create a pseudo-silence called Zionology. Such was the shared obsession between the Soviets and the Arabs to defame Jewish national aspirations. It was arguably at this time that the attempt to separate anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism was formulated. In other words, they came up with you you could be an anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic. That was the, the propaganda they were trying to create. Then at that time, Mahmoud Abbas, who's now the head of the Palestinian Authority, was, uh, we're talking right after the Second World War, he was a young man then, and he got his doctorate in, uh, in Russia in what is essentially a vehement denial of central aspects of the Holocaust. His thesis doubted the existence of gas chambers, doubted a number of Jews murdered, and accused the Zionist movement of secretly colluding with the Nazis and supporting the genocide of the Jews of Europe. That is what Mahmoud Abbas wrote in his doctoral thesis. That's why he's now called doctor, because he, he, his thesis was this absolute lie. It was Zionist inversion the turning of the victims of the Holocaust, the Jews, into perpetrators. Abbas found a highly willing environment not just to entertain his fantasies and his conspiracies about Jews, but one that encouraged his conspiracies. With this in mind, it really should not be a surprise here. Abbas, now the head of the Palestinian Authority, recently claimed in front of German Chancellor in Berlin that Israel had perpetrated 50 holocausts against the Palestinians. That actually shocked the, head of the, shocked the German president. Now that was not a mere flip of the tongue. It was probably the most public and prominent holocaust inversion, but by far not the first from him, from Abbas, or his leadership over the years. It, 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 it's, it's inversion. That's one of the tricks used against Israel. According to Palestinian Media Watch, which keeps an eye on Palestinian media, and also keeps an idea of what's being the education in the Palestinian Authority, and it keeps an eye on statements by prominent Palestinian officials there um, appears to be barely be a week 
to go by when one Palestinian mouthpiece does not apply the Nazi or Holocaust analogy to Israel or to Jews. So the Palestinian Authority has made a science of Holocaust inversion. It's not a side issue, it's a central pillar of their propaganda. First of, first of all, it, because if its supporters can lower the sympathy for the Jewish people who suffered during the Holocaust, then it could remove a barrier to its own brand of extermination. In other words, if you sympathize with the Jews because of the Holocaust, the idea is somehow by the Palestinian uh, theoreticians is to diminish the Holocaust and move over and make the Palestinians now the sufferers. Now, also, the Nazis were the most brutal and efficient genocide people in modern history. By applying the Nazi name to Israel, they try and tar Israel with the most extremist, murderous tendencies. Now, obviously, few knowledgeable people could possibly believe Israel's treatment of the Palestinians is anything reminiscent of the, reminiscent of the Holocaust. The Palestinian rejectionist movement knows a whole generation is ignorant of the attempted extermination of the Jewish people during the middle of the last century. They know it was evil, but they don't really know anything about it. To some in the Palestinian education, nothing is taught about it. So now, some supporters of Palestinian rejectionism in the West understand the stigma of applying the Holocaust or Nazi analogy to the Jewish state. So they moved over to the a new thing, it's the apartheid libel, which has no historic Jewish connotations and whose meaning has been watered down by international organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. In other words, you can now accuse the Jews of, uh, of apartheid. That's the newest word to be used against the Jews. However, those like Abbas, uh, who was an older fellow, he grew up before apartheid became a well-known word, Abbas will cling to his, host, his uh, Holocaust inversion uh, forever. It's ingrained in him and gave him his greatest academic achievement, his doctorate. It's his weapon of choice against Israel, and his obsession with it is why he could so brazenly utilize it in Berlin alongside a German chancellor of all people. Now, the, uh, Abbas subsequently made some kind of apology, which of course was window dressing, and this was demonstrated by the fact that his original terminology was defended by his party, Fatah. A gentleman named Bunter al-Hayek, is a senior Fatah official, said that Abbas's remarks 
in Germany were designed to remind the world of the suffering of the Palestinian people who deserve an apology for the crimes committed against them by the State of Israel and the Jews. So, Palestinian Holocaust inversion, in other words, making the Jews the perpetrators of, the holo of a Holocaust against the Palestinians, that will unfortunately not go away anytime soon. Expect, uh, even though there, there have been international condemnations, it will just return to a more mundane daily incitement in the Palestinian media, in the Palestinian education, and by Palestinian authority officials. It is not a distraction from Palestinian violent rejection, but Holocaust denial and inversion of the Holocaust is a central part of the Palestinian propaganda. One whose propaganda was built by the best in the former Soviet Union, and it's embraced pretty much by useful idiots in the West until today. In other words, the, the Abbas and his friends have been clever enough to invert the Holocaust and now say that the Jews are perpetrating a Holocaust against the Palestinians. That is why he so brazenly uh, said that the in Germany, in front of the German Chancellor, he brazenly said that Israel had perpetrated 50 Holocausts against the Palestinians because he knows how strong that word is and the memories that it carries. So I just what I just wanted to say is the fact that the, uh, the head of the Palestinian Authority, who got his doctoral thesis uh, in Moscow writing about the, how big a lie the Holocaust was and how not so many Jews were killed, but uh, he is essentially, he was raised on the idea of inverting the Holocaust and using the idea of a Holocaust against the Jews and he's an old-timer now, he's in his late 80s, he's not going to change. There are, there are other methods of Palestinian propaganda against the Jews and against the state of Israel, but Abbas will stick with Holocaust inversion. That's the one he was raised on, that's the one he's got his doctorate on, and that's the one he knows, that inversion of the Holocaust is the only propaganda he really knows how to use against the Jews. So other Palestinians moved on to other accusations against the Jews, but Abbas is stuck with the one he essentially grew up with. And since I talk about the uh, lack of change in uh, Mahmoud Abbas, he's stuck with the way he was raised, I want to say something, it's, it sounds like it's a different subject, but it's sort of related. <coughs> it, there's a, a local rock icon named Aviv Geffen. Uh, 
And he's been a longtime cultural symbol of the left here in Israel, left with a capital L. And doing a recent concert in the West Bank, he said that he regretted his past criticism of settlers living there, whom he had long denounced as obstacle to peace. Uh, he said, and I quote, it's very moving. He was, he's one of the biggest voices against settlement. Now we gave a, a, a concert in a settlement, and he said, and I quote, it's very moving to be here. I went through a personal journey that was not simple and not short. I understand that me and my brothers, uh, you, you people who are settlers, were made to, to separate for any number of reasons, including my ignorance, which came from a desire to play least part of my my uh, audience. In other words, he, he admitted that he wanted to please his audience by talking against the settlers, and now he apologizes. He said he spoke from ignorance, he didn't understand the other, and he went on to say, I've matured, I want to ask your genuine forgiveness from my heart. That's a fantastic thing for a popular star to do. The uh, the interesting, uh, the uh, in 1995, when he vaulted in an international prominence, he was the last person to embrace Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin before he was assassinated, and um, the the uh, that, that's what exactly happened. The assassination took place at a Tel Aviv conference organized by liberal supporters of Rabin, including Geffen. He said, Geffen now said, uh, my fundamental beliefs have not changed. I remain on the left, but a man who doesn't know how to make peace within his own people won't know how to make peace with his neighbors. Uh, he attributed his evolution to what he said was a friendship with Ayelet Shaked, who's a right-wing politician, who's currently the interior ministry. So uh, it's interesting. He died, He put on a, a knitted kippah uh, on his head. That's the kind of kippah that's favored by religious Zionists, and that is a meaningful move in a culture where the style of a man's head covering is significant, is a signifier of his political ideology. And he performed with Abraham Fried, who is a popular Hasidic Orthodox singer. So Fried and Geffen struck up a friendship early in a pandemic after Geffen expressed sympathy during an online concert toward the Orthodox city of B'nai Brak, whose residents had been hard hit by the COVID. So that's interesting. Geffen, who was super anti-settlement 40 years ago, performed in two different settlements, one Kidumim and at Bet El. The uh, by the way, Geffen was a self-described conscientious objector in a country where military service is mandatory, and Geffen also performed for the first time at Israel Army bases in recent months. So here you have a popular figure who took very strong left-wing 
anti-settlement positions. By the way, Geffen was attacked by a lot of left-wingers, particularly the Harvard's newspaper, who had some very nasty things to say about him, uh, not only because he went to a settlement to perform, but also because he made a public apology about his own his previous positions. As a matter of fact, I'll quote what he said. I mean, it takes a lot of guts for a public figure to do that. He said, being here today in Bethel is something I would not have dreamed of several years ago. I'm so glad to be with you here in love and in honor. I ask you what I ask myself from myself only. Unity, enough with excitement. We have to understand we are real brothers. Thank you for inviting me here, and I love you. That takes a lot of guts from a public figure. I'll be back after the break. This is Jay Shapiro again, and thanks for listening. This week marks the 125th anniversary of the first Zionist Congress held in Basel, Switzerland. In celebration of this milestone, a conference is being held in the very same city and the very same casino where the first Zionist Congress was held. The world the current chairman of the World Zionist Organization is there, along with many other WZO department heads, our president Isaac Herzog, Swiss officials, Israeli officials, and hundreds of representatives of Israel and diaspora Jewry are all there to discuss Zionism, Israel, and celebrate this very special occasion. It seems only fitting that in honor of the 125th anniversary of the rebirth of Zionism, and of course in recognition of the upcoming 75th Israeli Independence Day, that we take the opportunity to reflect on what today's Zionism and the state of Israel means. The first Zionist Congress was held from August 29th to August 31st, three days, 1897. Afterward, Theodor Herzl famously wrote, At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be greeted by universal laughter. In five years, perhaps, and certainly in 50 years, everyone will perceive it. Herzl's statement has passed into legend, but few remember that the first Zionist Congress drafted the first manifesto of the Zionist movement. This called for promotion of Jewish settlement in Palestine, the federation of Jews into groups around the world, the strengthening of Jewish feeling and consciousness and identity, and its steps to achieve governmental grants to help achieve the Zionist vision. Historically, it's of interest to note that the Basel program was replaced in 1951 by the so-called Jerusalem program, 
which reflected the shift in Zionist priorities now that the State of Israel has been established. The new focus was on encouraging Aliyah and encouraging absorption of Olim, supporting pioneers and encouraging private capital investment, also fostering Jewish consciousness and mobilizing public opinion for Israel and Zionism, and the maintenance of and defense of Jewish rights all around the world. This program was revised again in 2004. Yet today, 125 years after Basel, there are a lot of people who feel that the Zionist enterprise has already achieved its aims. After all, there is now a thriving, secure, and democratic Jewish state. Because of this, there is danger that the 125th anniversary might be viewed as just a birthday, an opportunity for mere sentimentality, and to share some celebrations. Now, that would be unfortunate. Now, more than ever, we need to reassert and reimagine Zionist principles for today's world. When the first Zionist Congress took place, Zionism was not exactly an interesting or a trendy idea. It took time, effort, and years of work and wars to, for the idea of Zionism to permeate the culture of the time. Interestingly, we find ourselves in a similar situation today. While there was a period in time when Zionism became a popular idea, particularly in 1948, it ultimately led to the ushering in of a new state of Israel. Recent years have again presented a downturn in the acceptance and popularity of the Zionist idea. Theories as to why this may, may be vary, but the core issues remain the same. There is a lack of consistency and understanding of what Zionism and in an independent Jewish state mean today. Let's look at the facts. We Jews are no longer the same wandering constantly persecuted people we once were. We have our challenges. Anti-Semitism is on the rise in a lot of liberal countries, including the United States. Iran is creeping ever closer to obtaining a nuclear weapon, which they claim they will use to destroy the Jewish state. But all in all, we are a flourishing, successful, and strong nation with a mighty country to call our own. You look at all the other countries that came into existence since the Second World War, and we, I think we can honestly say, are the most successful. But we still continue to find ourselves faced constantly with the question of the relevance of Zionism and the need for the Jews to have their own state. I know there are many Jews 
many popular Jews who say it's nice that the Jews have their own state so that I will have a place to go if I'm in trouble as a Jew. I consider this to be a very selfish attitude, not only toward Zionism, but toward Judaism. Imagine if all of us took the time to think about answers. It is at times easy to take Israel for granted, especially for those who were born well after the early days and the early wars and the present wars of the state. If the Zionist mission is to continue, we must recommit ourselves to its values. You have to really think about the question, what does Zionism actually mean today, and why should it be important? In considering the future of Zionism, 125 years after Basel, we need to consider recent changes in the Jewish and wider world. Firstly, of course, while the age of a mass aliyot may have come to an end, there are still millions of Jews around the world for whom Israel is the center of their religious and cultural existence, and we have a responsibility to support them. I think it is the responsibility of the Jewish state to worry about Jews around the world. When I say worry, I include things like education, about Jewish education. That's something that is important and Israel must support. Most of us know what the core mission of Zionism is, the right of the Jewish people to have our own state, in our own ancient homeland, Israel, Palestine. But this mission should also account for the global realities of our time. Zionism is also the seemingly obvious idea that this right should not be globally questioned or doubted. No other nation's existence is ever up for debate. We cannot allow the state of Israel to be the subject of different rules than other nations have. You never hear it said about any nation that it has a right to exist. Israel is the only nation for which the expression it has a right to exist is used. Obviously, Zionism is the understanding we're a sovereign nation that will take care of ourselves under any circumstance, and this is going to be tested very shortly uh, if the Americans go back into the agreement that will allow Iran to become a nuclear power. We will never again wait it out while others openly threaten to destroy us. Let's leave aside the... Uh, fact that even a Jew who wants to keep all the commandments, all the mitzvot, cannot do so if they don't live in the land of Israel. There are a number of uh, mitzvot, commandments, that can only be performed in the land of Israel. There are 
there there were those who claim that if you look carefully at the list of the 613 mitzvot commandments there are uh, 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 58 that are associated with the land of Israel and can only be uh, accomplished in the land of Israel. The chief rabbi of Haifa, many years ago, he has since passed away, he said to me that Chet Nun, 58, means Chen, which means favor. If you don't live in Israel, you can't do the 58 mitzvot, and therefore you are lacking chen. You're lacking something that a Jew should have. Now, obviously, Zionism is a belief that all Jews have a home in Israel. Aliyah should be a goal for us all, but that means Israel must make the integration of Olim a top priority. Israelis must understand that Olim belong here just as much as anyone lucky to have been born here, and everybody must make an effort to treat Olim as family. They are family. They just came here late. <laughs> and that's the way it is with family. Zionism must include fostering and engaging diaspora Jewish communities with Israel in a positive way so we always maintain a connection with our brothers and sisters abroad. And I think one of the main things in this area is Jewish education. Now, of course, Zionism is also the continued fight against anti-Semitism wherever it rears its ugly head. Zionism is pride in our country, in our people, our culture, and our success. Zionism today, 2,000 years after the exile, is a celebration of all the Jewish people have accomplished and how far we have come. It's the acknowledgement that our strength and the opportunities we have because of that strength. So the Jewish people, Israel, and the Zionist movement all look different at 125 years after the Basel Statement. But the years have not made Zionism any less important. We cannot forget that Zionism will always have a place and a purpose. This landmark anniversary of the First Zionist Congress and of Israel's independence is a perfect opportunity for us to remember where we came from, reflect on where we are, and reinvigorate ourselves for all that is to come with a commitment to the idea that binds us all to Zionism. These are the facts on the ground. Incidentally, one of the most recent achievements of Zionism, political Zionism, if you will, was the Abraham Accords. They are the most significant diplomatic breakthrough for Israel since the peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt. Expanding the circle of peace and cooperation is a vital strategic interest that concerns not just governments, 
but also civil society people, businessmen, and private citizens. Israel has a vital role to play in bringing innovation and technology to, technology to the rest of the world. This is a country with no basic resources other than the intelligence and the initiative of its people. We have no coal, we have no iron, we have no oil, we have nothing that other nations have. We only have our people. So, by the way, you can also say that the Holocaust is a very good argument for Israel's existence. There has to be a place where Jews can go, no questions asked when they're in trouble. But it's not simply for a reason like that that Israel exists. It's vital that education provides positive reasons, Jewish identity, and for collective collective belonging. Any kind of new Zionist program should have a bedrock of community, peace, innovation, and education. That is what you need in any new Zionist program. Change is really the law. Only by being alert to the ever-shifting landscape will be able to ensure that Zionism remains as significant in the 21st century as it was in the 20th. Zionism didn't finish with the realization of Herzl's prophecy. Zionism is a, is a project in progress. Even now, here in Israel, we haven't defined exactly what a Jewish society is. For example, one of the newest arguments which is going to come up, and particularly in the next election, is about public transportation on the Sabbath. It's something we didn't we didn't have our own country, and now we have our own country. We we want to make sure that it reflects Jewish values, and Jewish values in particular. It's not just the modern values of secular education and technology and all the modern stuff. Jewish values goes back more than 3,000 years. It's based on the Torah that has kept us alive, even after 2,000 years of an often bitter exile. So you can't come into a country and finally have a state of your own after 2,000 years of diaspora and exile and decide you want to do away with Jewish law. The state of Israel, even if everyone is not particularly religious personally, and when I say religious, I, I'm not talking about the laws between man and man. You can you you don't have you don't have to particularly be religious not to steal, or not to make noise in public and things like that. That's in a sense has nothing to do with religion. It has to do what we call menschlichkeit, being a proper human being. But we have to be beyond that because we reflect 3,000 years of history primarily based on our honor and our commitment to Torah. You can't come and make a Jewish state and throw away those values that kept you alive for all those years in the diaspora. 
So in like it says in the ethics of the fathers, it may not be our duty to finish the work, but we are not at liberty to neglect it. We want the country to be a Jewish country, a modern country, and reflect Jewish values that are time-honored, mostly based on the Torah. It's a tough job, and we face these kind of problems today, but it's nice to have your own country where you can do the fighting around about how you should behave. We're here. It's like a family. The Jewish people is a big family, and families have intra-family arguments and discussion. But the fact that they're a family is what keeps them together. And the, the state of Israel is based on the fact that the Jews are a family with a responsibility to those of us who live here and a responsibility of those who don't there and who don't live here and who have not yet made Aliyah. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. You know, I consider my program not to be a news program because you have news all the time and all kind of media. And what I try to do is to get those areas that are under the headlines, behind the news. Since my program is only once a week, I have to carefully pick out items, uh, not the kind that you have to keep an eye on every day, but the kind that more or less, at least in my estimation, they tell what's happening in Israel and they allow the listeners to get a, an idea of the environment in which we Israelis live. Now, uh, I came across an article that quoted a, um, a, a uh, journal. There is a, uh, a study was published in a journal. It was published on August 24th in a uh, peer-reviewed journal called the Journal of Health Communication. And uh, this they did a research, research paper with the title, this is really a mouthful, the title is Caught in a Dangerous World, Problematic News Consumption and Its Relationship to Mental and Physical uh, Ill-Being. It was written by uh, three people from the Texas Tech University, and they concluded that people with an obsessive urge to constantly check the news are more likely to suffer from stress, anxiety, as well as physical ill health. So it's, a, it's not the news that defines a reader's mood, but the mood sometimes in, in what determines what they're going to look for in the first place. Uh, even looking for compulsively for good news can be a form of escapism. These social scientists from Texas noted, during the last two years, we have lived through a series of worrying global events from the COVID pandemic to Russia invading Ukraine, large-scale protests, mass shootings, and devastating wildfires. For many people, reading bad news can make us feel temporarily powerless and distressed. For others, being exposed to a 24-hour news cycle of continuously, continually evolving events 
can have a serious impact on mental and physical well-being. Those who have a high level of news addiction report significantly greater physical ill-being. Witnessing these events unfold in the news can bring about a constant state of high alert in some people, kicking their surveillance motives into overdrives and making the world seem like a dark and dangerous place. I'm quoting what these uh, sociologists wrote, and I continue to quote, For these individuals, a vicious cycle can develop in which rather than tuning out, they become drawn further in, obsessing over the news and checking for updates around the clock to alleviate their emotional distress. But it doesn't help. And the more they check the news, the more it begins to interfere with other aspects of their lives. Also, these researchers note that having a maladaptive relationship with the news differs, differs from being a news junkie. That is, we argue it is not the amount of news that one consumes that's problematic so much as the nature in which it is consumed. So when you read or see something and think to yourself, it makes me sick, apparently you're right. Skepticism it seems, is healthy. Although the study is hot off the press, the precept behind its findings made headline years ago. There's a phase made famous by a New York Magazine writer, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, in Israel, um, news is a national obsession, that's for sure. The news might be unhealthy, but nobody dies here of boredom. More than 1,000 rockets fell on the country less than a month ago, and that's already considered old news, unfortunately. The Iranian nuclear threat, on the other hand, it's so pervasive that people tend to tune it out. It's easier to concentrate on things like teacher strikes or the threatened walkout by medical interns and the rising cost of living. Some news is good only for those who need to raise their blood pressure. So these uh, researchers also said the economic pressures facing outlets coupled with technological advances and the 24-hour news cycle have encouraged journalists to focus on selecting what they call newsworthy stories that will grab news consumers' attention. However, for certain types of people, the conflict and drama that they characterize newsworthy not only grab their attention and draw them in, that lead to a maladaptive relationship with the news. Thus, the results of our study emphasize that the commercial pressures that news media face are not just harmful to the goal of maintaining a healthy democracy, they also may be harmful to individuals' health. So the researchers suggested instead of cutting off news consumption completely, as is usually the case with other types of addictions, people should instead focus more on developing a healthier relationship with the news. Totally turning out could mean missing important information, which should even be regarding to their health. So uh, I don't know if what I just read is... Uh, 
good news for journalists or not. But in Israel, we don't have that problem. The thing is, the next item, which is very short, but I think it's important. Uh, you know, the uh, people who run for the Knesset don't run as individuals. They run on a party list. Uh, there are 120 seats in the Knesset. So every party who wants to run, who registers to run, can put on a list and up to 120 names, even though you don't expect to get that many people elected, of course. And a lot of the last numbers, the last names on the list are honorary, given to people to make them think that they're important. But you have to put the list into Knesset. So they put an advertisement in the newspaper, and I'll just read it quickly to the listeners. Pursuant to Clause 57.9 of the Knesset election list, uh, uh, Regulation 13 of the year 5733, the list of candidates for the 25th Knesset would be, would be submitted to the Central Elections Committee for the Knesset and committee's offices in the Knesset's residence in Jerusalem on the following dates. And uh, on Wednesday, the 18th of Elul, 5782, uh, which is the 14th of September, 2022, between the hours of 2 and 5, you can go and submit a list. The numbers for the key to submit lists will be distributed at the Palumbo Gate in the Knesset building starting at 9 a.m. The numbers for the key to submit lists will be distributed at the Palumbo Gate starting at 1 in other words, if you decide you want to run the list for the Knesset, you go to the Palumbo Gate of the Knesset on uh, the 14th of September, and uh, you hand in your list of up to 120 names. I don't, they don't say anything here about uh, having to pay to hand in a list. I guess... It would seem to me that the one I show Israel is very democratic, so you can hand, probably hand in a list for free. It also says bring a means of identification when entering the Knesset, just as an identity card, a license, or a passport. I think a passport is rather a funny form of identification. It would almost imply that a foreigner can come and hand in a list. Anyhow, so uh, any of my listeners who are interested in uh, handing in a list for Knesset, uh, do you have a chance next Wednesday? I wish you luck. You can hand in the list up to 120 names. And uh, if you really want to be nice and you have some uh, respect for my program, you can put my name on your list somewhere around 70, number 70. I think there's no chance I'll get in, but I also think there's no chance you guys will get in either, but that's life. That's how democracy works here in Israel. The next item was hardly mentioned on the radio or television here in Israel, and it appeared on the back pages of uh, the Jerusalem Post and the Hebrew papers, and it said that the head of the Mossad, uh, his name is David Barnea. He left for Washington on Monday.
for a series of meetings at the White House, the State Department, the Pentagon, the CIA, the Congress, and uh, all this is because the U.S. and the superpowers are uh, look like they're reviving the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, which of course Israel is opposed to. Our Defense Minister Benny Gantz and the National Security Advisor uh, Ayahuatl went last month to the States. Our Prime Minister Yair Lapid spoke with U.S. President Joe Biden last week. And uh, Barney is also expected to speak with the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. So uh, we ha it's a very serious problem. The, the uh, Americans are pushing to renew the agreement that allow Iran to become a nuclear power. The Iranians have already said the first target of their target of their nu nuclear weapon will be Israel. So that's something we have to worry about. There's been a string of senior Israeli security officials uh, going to the states, particularly uh, preventing an agreement that to a dangerous new nuclear deal with Iran. So, what's happening is these Israeli representatives are going to meet with congressional intelligence committees, and that's especially important since Israel needs to reach out more to members of the Congress who are in the position of opposing or blocking uh, the agreed deal. So it's something you really have to worry about, and we're sending uh, our best people there, our most knowledgeable military and political people, to try to convince the United States not to renew this deal. The, uh, the problem is that the experts feel that Israel's efforts will continue to have limited impact on U.S. policy unless it conducts a more public campaign aimed at galvanizing broader opposition in Congress and among the American people themselves. The... Uh, it's important, uh, but the subject matter and the timing is really important because uh, apparently, according to the reports, the United States is on the verge of renewing this terrible nuclear deal with Iran, which represents a, a real danger to the state of Israel. Some of the experts, by the way, have little faith in Israel's ability to significantly change U.S. position vis-a-vis -vis Iran because the United States' interest in bringing down oil prices and President Biden's desire to get a diplomatic achievement ahead of the November midterm elections. According to all the polls, the Democrats are going to lose the House. They may even lose the Senate. And interestingly enough, the American president is campaigning now uh, before the election coming up in November. And I heard him speak the other day on American uh, TV and he mentioned nothing at all about the inflation in the states, about the fact that the the, the border with uh, Texas is an open border and drugs and criminals are coming across. He avoids that uh, because of the most of the polls show that the Democrats might lose the House and the Senate. And indeed, the, the president's own uh, rating is down to between 30 and 40 percent. So it's sort of like a, a real historic low for the popularity of American president. So um, 
They're, they're going to try, our people are trying to convince the United States to toughen up its position of uh, how the, the Iran's nuclear sites can be inspected. So uh, they also want to press the administration to coordinate mutual stance on how to actually Iranian cheat after the deal is signed. The, uh, so it's really a, a really tough situation. It's uh, one of vital importance to the state of Israel. We cannot allow a, a uh, outspoken enemy who wants to destroy us to become a nuclear power. I think uh, if the deal goes through, that'll increase the likelihood of Israel taking action. We have to do what's best for us. By the way, it's interesting, as far as our relations with the United States, as Iran continues its race toward nuclear power, the Israel Missile Defense Organization and the U.S. Missile Defense Agency and the Israeli Air Defense Command and the U.S. Air and Missile Defense Task Force held a joint simulation, a training exercise focused on protecting Israel from ballistic missile threats. That's interesting, that in a very close cooperation between the Israeli military and the American military, the drill took place in late July at a at a, something called the Israel Test Bed Battle Lab. It, it's, it was developed by an Israeli company called Elbin, and it can simulate both Israel and American air defense systems and can display and record real-time data to assist in debriefings. So, interestingly enough, during the simulation training exercise, Israeli forces operated the uh, several uh, defense missiles, Arrow, David Sling, and Iron Dome, and the American forces operated what they called the Patriot, Aegis, and a THAAD systems. So what happens is the joint simulation training exercise, in a sense, continues the tradition of really excellent cooperation between the United States Armed Forces and Israeli Armed Forces to improve the soldiers' competency level for tactics. So the Washington and Israel have signed an agreement that would see the U.S. assist Israel with missile defense in times of war. The two militaries have held numerous joint air defense exercises in recent years. So we have extensive cooperation with the American Air and Missile Defense Forces, and the combination of the different systems significantly improves our readiness to face evolving threats. So Israel, it's interesting, when Israel, 1948, when Israel came into being, it had, a, I think, at the Air Force, it was a few Piper Cubs. And now we have a first-class military, thank God, and the United States is aware of this, and the Americans even want to cooperate in training exercises with the Israeli military. So that speaks highly of our defense establishment. They're, these drills are part of a scheduled exercise, and apparently they're not related to the high tensions with Iran. The uh, so now it's interesting. By the way, I saw in the paper 
Iran possesses more than 1,000 short and medium-range ballistic missiles, and they continue to smuggle weapons to countries and uh, other organizations, non-state actors like Hezbollah. And it's it's thought that uh, Hezbollah, which is on our border, uh, is thought to have an arsenal of about 50,000 missiles on our northern border uh, with Lebanon. So Israel is under really, really alarming danger. The Americans are cooperating with us, and hopefully uh, whatever will happen, the good Lord will take care of us. And I think uh, it's uh, it's time not just for uh, joint uh, defense uh, exercises, I think it's time for a lot of praying. It can't hurt. <clears throat> By the way, there's one other important point. It doesn't get headlines. Israel moved from the American the European Command to uh, now to what's something called CENTCOM, C-E-N-T-C-O-M. Uh, it moved uh, to that in uh, September of last year. So this move not only simplifies cooperation with American the troops in the region, but it can also create the potential for a regional coalition with Arab countries that have normalized ties with Israel against the threats posed by Iran. So the Middle East today is not the Middle East that it was even five years ago. It's a whole different world. One, it's unfortunately, I think, more dangerous than it was before, but we will do what we can. And as I said, prayer can't hurt. Thanks for listening. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Doris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News.
news, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 